Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Our podcast and radio show explore the world's cultural landscape. We engage at the intersection of digital media, sound art, and social practice to spark conversations about contemporary art, film, and architecture. Today, we're talking about what it means to be Black in 21st century America. The meaning and expression of Blackness in art has a history of intricate connections to civil rights and social movements. In the United States and abroad, painting and drawing, filmmaking and photography, performance and protest have long represented diverse creative perspectives on the volatile subject of race and identity in this country. Thelma Golden, now director of the Studio Museum in Harlem, is known for sparking debates about race through exhibitions that consider the past, present, and potential future of black identity. In 1994, she curated Black Male, Black Masculinity, and Contemporary American Art at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York, the city where she grew up. In 2001, Golden's first curatorial project at the Studio Museum was Freestyle, an exhibition designed to spotlight the work of emerging Black artists. In her catalog essay, Golden used the term post-Black to characterize the work of artists adamant about not being labeled as Black artists, though their work was deeply interested in redefining complex notions of Blackness. Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, another landmark exhibition, was the backdrop for Thelma Golden's 2018 talk at the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. Collaboratively organized by curators of Crystal Bridges in Bentonville, Arkansas, and the Tate Modern in London, the exhibition illuminates the enduring influence of black artistic practice from 1963 to 1983 one of the most politically, socially, and aesthetically revolutionary periods in American history. Golden reflects on her role in the evolving narrative. When I came to the museum, I felt like an important role I could have was to begin also to think about the future and what the future could look like through showing and supporting the artists of the present, to think about emerging artists and defining the space in which emerging artists might live as being a critical role the museum could have. And that has taken the form in a series of exhibitions beginning in 2001, all beginning with the letter F, freestyle first, then frequency, flow four, and most recently fictions. All exhibitions which have taken the pulse on what black artists are thinking about, making work about, responding to, reacting to, inspired by, infuriated by, in their work as they're making it today. The first one I worked on with Christine Kim and the following exhibitions have been curated by the amazing and stellar group of curators who have worked at the Studio Museum in these years. And they have allowed us in the present, right, really beginning the beginning of this century, to really invest in what has always been the museum's ideal, right? To think about black artists in the broadest way, to understand and engage with the work and the artists in the fullest sense of possibility. Seven years after Freestyle, 
A 2008 exhibition in Chicago about the cultural production of race presented evidence of shifting rhetoric on the subject of blackness. Laxart director Hamza Walker organized Black Is, Black Ain't during his tenure as curator for the Renaissance Society. Walker invited artists to demonstrate his observation that contemporary art had pushed past broader social views on inclusion and multiculturalism to address the complexity, contradiction, and subjectivity of race in America. Black and non-black artists presented a communal reading of so-called blackness at odds with the idea that race is socially and politically irrelevant. In late 2013, when the Renaissance Society at the University of Chicago presented a Black Is, Black Ain't symposium, Hamza Walker was there to set the stage. He told his own story about how he came to understand race when he was growing up. At his high school in the 1980s, for example, race was a subject taught in social studies. Other inherent contradictions in his education, both on the street and in the classroom, influenced the shape of his 2008 curatorial project. Race was a fact as self-evident as our very being, its meaning derived from the value accorded to difference. That value, in turn, served as the basis of a fate and an identity over which black subjects, until relatively recently, had no control. For the greater part of history, the dominant conclusion was that blacks were inferior, whether deduced through bogus biological science or deduced empirically by pointing to the ghetto, a socially engineered destitution whose machinations are historically rooted to the extent that their present day effects are routinely mistaken for causes in their own right. In 1980, at age 14, our understanding of race was a highly heterogeneous mix of ideas and ideologies of which school was only a part, albeit an important one. Self-determination was weighed against embryonic but no less crucial nuggets of anti-essentialist thinking. Looking back at that class in 1980, I realized how teachers and students alike were neophytes. How do you teach race? And by the same token, how does one learn race? Part of its teaching at that time was in fact its unlearning. It was when I did this show that I realized I'm the child of Mr. Williams' quandary, insofar as I came to sympathize with it wholeheartedly. Teaching as unlearning, a paradox I took to be reflected in the title, Black Is, Black Ain't. All critically important, the exhibition's black male, freestyle, black is, black ain't, and soul of a nation are among others that inform an ongoing dialogue about how art perceives and expresses blackness in America. Here, we revisit conversations with artists that touch on this complicated subject. We're driving by Coconut Grove, and you just told me some history of it I didn't know. Coconut Grove is the oldest black community in South Florida. Born in Trinidad and based in Miami, Johan Rahman looks at blackness through the lens of her camera creating a modern photo portrait of black communities across Florida. She invites us to join her quest one day to see what she's discovering. Today we are on a field trip to see one of the communities that Johan is photographing in her project called Black Florida. Tell me what led you to want to 
take this on four years ago? I started doing Black Florida. I wasn't doing a project. I was basically taking care of myself and connecting with communities that reminded me of home. I started going into Liberty City, Little Haiti, Brownsville, because they all reminded me of the place I grew up in Trinidad, the Laventil Hills. So that was the start of it, and friends were noticing the work that I was posting on social media and encouraged me to take it seriously as a project, which I did by the end of 2015. It's Black Florida because my focus is on the black communities of the state. Why I decided to do the entire state, I'm not sure. (laughs) I guess I don't know how to do anything small. The purpose of the project is to reclaim the narrative of what is life in black communities to focus on the nuances that are often overlooked in the media. What made you choose photography as your way of recording this cultural community? Because photography is my creative outlet. It's my passion. It's what gave me an opportunity to travel when I couldn't travel home. Photography was the tool that I use to capture and reminisce on home. And what has been the response of the communities? Of course, I observed you this morning in Flavas, a local establishment that is definitely a cultural hub. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah. Yeah. You got chicken to walk with a sweet tea. Yeah. 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 Our communities are absolutely overjoyed at the project and the narrative of blackness in Florida. They've claimed it as their own, which is, for me, the most important thing. So to me, it's fully collaborative. I couldn't just walk into any place and photograph in Perrine or Richmond Heights or Palatka or Lack or Jacksonville without someone allowing me to see it through their eyes. So it's their project. It's our project. I loved seeing this morning the relationship that you had with the people at Flavas, and I could tell how much it means to them that you pay them some attention, that your eyes are on them. And that reminds me of a book we were talking about this morning that's had a very big impact on each of us before we met, which is Zora Neale Hurston's writing, Their Eyes Were Watching God. And I love that book. I've been inspired by it for so many years. I want to know about how it has influenced your work. Zora Neale Hurston's work, her her legacy, her life, beyond her literature, has influenced my life, especially this project. I imagine myself walking in her shoes and the places that she's been to and the places that she would have gone to had she had the time to explore more. She's constantly in my head while I'm creating the work that I'm creating. I've spent much time photographing in Eatonville, 
which is where she lived a large part of her life. So Eatonville is extremely important to the narrative of this project. It's first incorporated black community in America. There was a feature in the Orlando Weekly on Eatonville. The mayor of Eatonville saw the feature and wrote a letter to the editor thanking them for the feature and thanking me for my work and the images portraying the community in such a beautiful, dignified way, contrary to what is sometimes portrayed. Let's talk about the fact that your own legacy is going to be these photographs, the legacy of the communities that you're working with. For me, Zora Neale Hurston, with her novel, that was my way of learning some black history that I didn't know about, the history of black people in Florida. And I appreciated how beautifully she told that story. So I love that she's your muse. She is, absolutely. This morning, we stopped by the House of God. The air around the House of God is very peaceful and calming. It's very interesting, the effect it had on me, just standing outside the church. Tell me about your first experience. First time going to House of God, I arrived and parked in front of that fenced-in lot. And when I came out, there were a couple flamingos in the lot, but the thing that stood out the most was the sound of the trees in the wind. And I can hear the church band, the sacred steel band, which is associated with House of God. It's the birthplace of the sound called sacred steel, which is the steel guitar. It's really loud and it drives the entire congregation. It drives the rest of the band. I came out and heard trees and I thought, oh my God, this is so beautiful. So not the image of black communities that is often told. The sounds associated in media with black communities are sirens, gunshots, anything that's aggressive noise. Confrontational sounds. But this is something that you would never hear. These green spaces, these kind of spaces that you try to create in other communities in the suburbs, they exist naturally in black communities. Really beautiful green spaces with noises like that, like where we're sitting right now. We're sitting in a park, but We could be sitting right out on the street in Perrine and still hear this type of ambient nature. That was the first thing I heard when I was approaching the House of God and I started recording it. You hear the sound change from the trees rustling in the wind to the sound of the sacred steel just before entering the church. From Washington, D.C., Jefferson Pender lives and works in Chicago. His minimalist, physically demanding performances and action videos often reference historical events, evoking cultural symbols embedded in the African-American experience and posing questions about the future of race and struggle. Doing these physical tasks, and in particular doing these physical tasks carrying with you everything that represents your identity, you're, you're, you're making associations. In my work, in the inertia cycle, it was all about, like, you know, um, my body in the inner city environment doing a laborious task 
that was obvious and a Herculean task, if you will, something like carrying a telephone pole, pulling a pole, pushing a car, it could all be you know, symbols of power and struggle and also futility. So mule, you were dragging, you actually had a harness on yourself, you were mm -hmm. dragging a 300-pound log, log yeah. through mm -hmm. the streets of the city. Baltimore. It, Baltimore. It, yeah, and uh, part of it was that that was ceiling tin and wall tin from homes that had been gutted. So it was like I'm pulling the weight of the past, uh, history. I always thought the pole was beautiful. I mean, it, it kind of had this wonderful texture and this history to it and strapped it on me and, and just uh, try to see what would it be like to, to, to move a heavy weight, almost like these muscleman competition where you see these people strapping on, you know, this harness and trying to, to pull a bus or, or a plane, you know. I'm, I'm pulling something that's, that's specific and, and maybe representative of, of an experience. Right, and I noticed in the three videos of the inertia series mm -hmm. you're wearing this gray suit i mean you're you're a mule as you describe it mm -hmm. uh in the first piece you're pulling this 300 pound weight wearing a suit and in marathon you are actually getting dressed somehow as you run right talk about that that's a pretty a pretty uh entertaining high energy piece that i how do you describe that? Well, yeah, with, with Marathon, it kind of started out as, as a vision, you know, like, like just like you get these ideas and you start drifting into the night. I, I had this idea of like this run, that this continuous run, and I thought about the uniform, you know, what I would wear so people would know that, that, that I meant I was, I was serious. And so I, th I thought, well, I want to wear like professional clothing. You know, I want to wear something that represents, you know, the, the working man um, to, to some regard. And so what happened in Marathon, I start out with no clothes. I mean, there's no close-up shots, so you can't see the details. But it was all about, like, armament, like, like finding this suit, finding this, this power, you know, along the route. And then arriving at the location, and almost like John Henry, the steel-driving man, you know, who spent all this labor to, to lay down these spikes in the rail track and then collapses, right, you know, when, when he arrives or he wins the race. Marathon is, is all about this, you know, this, this continuous run and finally reaching this destination and, and collapsing. With Mule, it, it was more about like a, almost like a sketch of moving with this weight. For Lazarus, the suit was actually a suit of uh, my mentor, David Driscoll. Actually, his father originally owned the suit and gave it to him, and he gave it to me. You said he was a minister? Yeah, he was a minister in North Carolina, very close to Asheville. It was pretty exciting for me to have all of these clothes, again, with this history and with this relationship to the past, and to, and to embody this for the pieces that, that were about a connection to these old memories. With Mule, you seemed to be on your own, pulling mm -hmm. your weight, and then with Marathon, there were various people that helped you get dressed, basically, mm -hmm. were holding up a tie or helping you along the way. But in Lazarus, you really have this sense of, of an incredible community because in that piece, you start off trying to start an old Volvo, right? Right. With Lazarus, I wanted to step away from, from self. I wanted to have a presence there, but I wanted the piece to really be about the contribution of others to, in, in the project as well as you know, metaphorically in progress. But it's also it's delusionistic. It's not like it's, it's literal. It's much, as literal as it seems or as strong of a narrative as it seems, it's really a strong metaphor or visual trope 
of what it means to have the community behind you at the very end when it, it's it's not there. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of like an illusion. If you can picture this piece, he's starting to push the car by himself. So by the crescendo of the piece, I would say, the strongest moment of power you sense with the people helping you, there were about 15 or 20 people That's pushing right. you. That's right. For me, the irony of, of having all of these people move something that, that's supposed to move you became really what the piece was about. And actually, that's something that I, I feel people are always more than willing to, to help each other do, is, is to move a vehicle when it breaks down in the street. Because I think everybody knows what it feels like to be stranded in that way. Right. It's not requiring you to have a long-term commitment that's to that person. Exactly. And it, I think that's what Lazarus sort of communicates. They're all helping him, and then they drop off one by one till he's alone and rolling to a stop again. Right. Or he's alone and, and it never really happened. Chicago-born Theaster Gates engages in social practice on a global scale. His first encounters with creativity and the music of black churches influence his work to this day. A potter, artist, and urban planner, among his raw materials figure clay, tar, an abandoned house in Castle, Germany, and an entire neighborhood in the city where he was born. When he spoke at American University in Washington, D.C. in late 2012, Fresh Art International joined him on stage to talk about how his hometown influences his view of the world. Your practice, as I've been following it, very fortunate to visit both Dorchester Project in Chicago and Huguenot House, is very centered on urban spaces that are often seen as blighted or totally abandoned of disinterest to many people. I'm very interested in how you seem to communicate with the history of the people that inhabited that space and how you seem motivated to work in this context and derive from it your content. I think that one of the challenges I have, and I've noticed that many of my colleagues who rise out of places, is that when you gain access to other places, it's hard to let go of the luggage of the place that you're from. Some of my colleagues don't have this. They're happy when they leave their parents. They're happy to leave their suburb. They're happy that the familial tie is a loose one. I don't have that luxury. And so I think that I've always had the burden of trying to, at the same time, make meaning through making or whatever and reconcile that there's both meaning-making and reconciliation of these worlds that I live between. And so I think the thing that seems like blight or abandonment or the ills of the city, it's just where I'm from. And that I, I don't think about it like, I'm going to go work at a poor community. I think I'm burdened by the lack of resource in this place where I grew up, or this place reminds me of this other place where I grew up, and I'm burdened by its lack of cultural resource. I don't only have a couple tricks. And so I think I'm always just trying to bring my tricks with me, and, and my tricks are always attempting to make meaning and, and reconcile access, the access that I have, the lack of access other people have. So it happens that it's often the hood 
But what was great about Documenta was that it was not my hood. It had nothing to do with hood, but there was still a kind of chasm. Culture comes every five years. How horrible for a place that the deprivation have these oasis-like moments that you can time where things become vibrant and then they go dead again. So I was really interested in like, how do you ask the question about the possibility of culture living beyond the moment where culture is giving platform. So it's that way of enacting and just really taking the burden on yourself. And so that idea of labor as protest feeds into what you decide to do for each project in each context in which you're invited to work? Yeah, I think for anybody, I didn't have success asking permission, asking for political favors or aldermanic help, or I didn't have access to the black elite or the white elite. It's only now that I have access to the black elite because of the Jewish elite. And so the opportunities are just now being created. So in advance of that, or do the thing that I wanted. So it's like, well, I'd rather just try to do the thing than, because I already know I'm wasting energy, not trying, at least if I try to do the thing, like I get stronger. A Los Angeles native working in New York City, Sanford Biggers creates art that integrates film, video, installation, sculpture, drawing, original music, and performance. In our 2016 conversation, he reveals the influences of Buddhism and the role of family in his longtime relationship with historical quilts that he alters in his work. Biggers also describes his response to police killings of unarmed black people across the U.S. that year. The artist reflects on race-based aggression in a performative work that alters traditional African figurative sculptures. I lived in Japan for three years in the early 90s, and I was very just mesmerized by the culture, and specifically I got into different strains of Buddhism. I started to research them, I started to meditate, I would go to temples, in fact I lived across the street from a temple in Japan, and that's influenced my work for the last 15 years. These quilts, honestly, go all the way back to that use of pattern and geometry, which has been a consistent thread in my work since I started showing but also the philosophy in Buddhism, the idea of wabi-sabi, which is this notion of perfection in objects that seem imperfect. I like to use that in my own practice by looking at found objects loaded with so much history. Those degradations are actually the perfection. The quilts you work with, they're all American? All the quilts are American, typically between Maine, Vermont, and many of them are from Pennsylvania. The first 20 or 25 or so that I worked on were donated to me by a collector and a good friend of mine. Did you grow up sleeping under a quilt? My parents and my grandparents and so on are all from the South, from Houston and Nacogdoches and Galveston, Texas. So we grew up with quilts. I got reconnected to the idea of the quilt oddly enough, through the mandala and that pattern work, but also through looking at the work of my cousin, the muralist John Biggers, who was also very deep into sacred geometry and pattern. 
And these quilts, to me, are an extension of that research into pattern and geometry. And how do you apply sacred geometry? The quilts already have their own patterns, and, you know, there's anthologies of the different types of quilt patterns, of course. What I do is, in my lexicon of imagery that I put onto the quilts, I use sometimes platonic solids and diagrams, wire form diagrams, and geometric figures to create a sense of perspective. The pattern and design, the fabric, all mm-hmm. of that is so embedded in so much contemporary art these days. It's, I don't know, it's an interesting zeitgeist. I've been looking at that too. I don't know where that's come from exactly. Something about the materiality. I like this idea of me coming in as a late collaborator in a quilt. So, you know, imagine that these may have been made by multiple people sometime 100 years ago. And I should note that all my quilts are pre-1900. So they have some age to them. I come in 100 years later, and either you might consider it defacing or you might consider it embellishment, but I am a late collaborator in the trajectory of this quilt, which becomes a historical record. It does, and mm-hmm. it brings it back to life in a way. It brings it back. I think it, about it like sampling also, you know, um, and especially sort of like early 90s, mid-80s hip-hop when sampling was a big thing, and people were taking obscure songs and bringing them back to life, bringing them back to the dialogue. And in a way, this you know, is what I'm doing with the quilts. The human figure is central to his work. Quilts imply the body. Covering and comforting is their purpose. It's quite the opposite for the African sculptures he collected for the new video series he titled BAM. Their bodies are exposed, fragile, and defenseless. And I like the figurative relationship because I'm interested in invisibility and hypervisibility of being, you know, a black male. The source of the sculptural figures that you're mm-hmm. damaging? I've been collecting wooden African sculptures from flea markets and tourist shops around the world. Some of them are pretty authentic. Some of them are total knockoffs that are made in Mexico and Taiwan and so on. And what I do is then take them and I dip them in a thick brown wax to render them a little bit more obscure. I take them to a shooting range, and I sculpt them using artillery, 22 caliber, 12-gauge shotguns, and so on, and then cast the remnants in bronze. They're a stand-in for an every person, an every man figure, so that you know that it's a body that's being shot, but you don't know the details of that person. Watching real bullets dismember the small sculptures is an uncomfortable experience especially if you've been following news coverage and social media posts about repeated incidents of police violence against people of color in America. I like to speak about it in two ways. One is the very formal and art historical side where, you know, I'm going into bronze figurative sculpture, which of course goes all the way back to the classical Greek and Roman bronze sculptures and marble works dealing with the figure. And then the other side is the contemporary conceptual and political climate which revolves around the violence towards black citizens by the police. Very contemporary and very sad. Such a distressing moment in our history. Why aren't we advancing past this point of misunderstanding each other? We should be so far beyond this. But I think one of the issues is, in America, we've never really addressed our pathology. We're in total denial. And what that does is create a dysfunctional relationship. We all know that this violence against black citizens has been going on for at least 500 years. 
But now we have cell phones. People are pulling out their phones and recording it. So we now have witnesses. We have witnesses. Even though he gives each video the first name of an actual victim, the artist wants us to think more about the broader history of violence. Some people look at it as when I cast these figures in bronze that I'm memorializing the victim. But in fact, I'm memorializing the act, as if to say, never forget. Sanford formats and presents the videos in a way that connects with how we communicate in the post-internet era, how we witness and share life and death. The videos are short format, so they're a minute and 10 seconds, a minute and 20 seconds tops, and they're shown on a vertically mounted monitor to resemble a smartphone that would be held vertically, and that's the way where we're usually seeing all these videos. And they happen quickly because these acts happen at the blink of an eye. For example, Tamir Rice, when he was killed, they hadn't even stopped the police car before they already shot him through the window. So these things are happening, you know, in the blink of an eye. What do you hope people take away from seeing your work? The video makes people stop and think about the actions that are occurring. The videos have a violence to them, but they're also somehow beautiful. And I think that's important because there's a seduction moment and then there's a repulsion moment. And through that, the body sort of catalogs this in a visceral way. So that when you hear about these killings, you start to hear the impact of those gunshots in that video. And you start to think about how horrific this is and why is this happening every single week. And also to have the viewers ask more challenging questions. You know, what's happening in America today? What's America's relationship to the world? Where are we right now? The summer of 2016 was a tense moment in the U.S. Continued police killings of black citizens were the somber backdrop for our open conversation with Amy Sherald at the Monique Maloche Gallery in Chicago. We spoke about the construction of black identity and how the Baltimore-based artist's intersectional experience of blackness informs her work as a figurative painter. In 2018, Sherald's portrait of First Lady Michelle Obama placed her long-standing creative practice in the spotlight. We're here today in a place between grief and celebration with the latest shock of killings in America and the emotional tensions that are high at this moment. Amy Sherald is what we need. Her work and the vulnerability it expresses are bringing us together. So we're filled with sadness and anger. At the same time, we're filled with happiness and celebration around this fantastic artist. So you grew up in the South. I did. That's the heartland of what Dawood Bey describes in his essay about this show as the fraught social narrative of race in America. Mm -hmm. So talk about a challenging place to grow up. I mean, I was born in 73, so there was still a lot of residual racism in Columbus, Georgia. I feel like it's still a very segregated city in a lot of ways. I moved back to Georgia when I was 33 years old, and this was postgraduate school. So I had a new language, and I had a new way of seeing things, and I had this academic background behind me so that I was really finally able to understand my environment and then be able to put a language to it. So as a 33-year-old woman, I went home and I was interacting in the same spaces that I grew up in as a child, but just with more knowledge and the ability to like see the structure and understand it. And I think that's when I 
begin to have these introspective moments of who I was as an individual, going to Catholic schools and being in in an environment where there were not a lot of people that looked like me, but then being confused about my identity too, because I was light-skinned and my hair was a little light and like people would treat me, sometimes I wasn't black enough, but then some white people would be way more comfortable around me than they should and say things that it's like, well, you're not black anyway. I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> so not even being biracial, but having this, I guess, like an identity crisis in a way. So like reaching the ninth grade and all of a sudden having black friends and then trying to figure out how to fit in with my black friends. For me, it was like assuming a language. I came home from school and I was like, hey, Ma, I started talking like this. And my mom was like, I'm so sorry, but this is not going to happen. So like just, but again, like not having the language. I always joke around. I say public enemy. It's like it brought me home. Being able to find some kind of identity within music and then rap music and then having relationships with people of color who looked Obviously, they looked like me, but that kind of brought me along. But I felt like I was really confused for my whole freshman year of high school because of that. You've called it code switching, like yeah. the sociological term. Well, I learned that when I took sociology class. <laughs> yeah, isn't that funny how suddenly we learn what things are called? We've lived them our whole lives, and now we know what to yeah. call them. I mean, them. but it's something we all do. It's just, you know, it's not special to me. It's something we all do, but sure. I feel like it's something specifically that... Black people do, but then also, you know, I've done workshops with young Hispanic men and young African-American men where they sit down and talk about the commonalities that they have and what it means to have that because it's a skill and now it's a skill that would save your life. You know, it's a skill that I feel like a lot of youth don't have now is that ability to be the chameleon and change who you are in that environment so that you can just survive. Mm -hmm. I guess there's a sense of being alone and belonging at the same time that mm -hmm. you're dealing with. And in that changing that you did between home and school and outside, inside, black and white communities and environments, there's a certain freedom in it, no? I think for me, it was because in a way I formed my own identity. And it's not that I think I'm something that I'm not, but in a way you become what you're perceived as, and not necessarily in college, but I guess just after college, because I went to Clark Atlanta University basically for the reason of like just kind of having a black experience, what I consider, you know, a black experience, and because my father went to Morehouse. I don't know, like I think I always felt a little trapped by identity because of the fact that I didn't have black friends. And so I'm not sure this is a conversation that I would like normally have with strangers, but it's like I have my inner white girl and then I have a black woman. They all live inside of me culturally. I associate with a lot of different people. My friends growing up were from different countries. My best friend is from Yemen. And so I experienced Africa and Panama. I like living at the intersection of all those spaces because it feels freer and it feels like what a contemporary black experience should be. But that's a hard conversation to have in America with everything that's going on right now. There's no freedom to kind of experience yourself as you would be without the preconstructions of race and gender. Because I'm definitely a black woman, I'm definitely an American, but like without all the circumscribed things that happen around me, I wanted to get to know my real true inner self. And so I think I like that freedom because as an artist, I think outside of the box and I want to be able to express myself in any way. 
that I feel like my spirit moves me respectfully so without feeling like I'm abandoning an historical narrative that's deeply in me. The fact that you're painting people and you're painting your people, yeah. but you've chosen to depict them with skin that's charcoal, excluding the idea of color as race was one idea you had to begin. All decisions that are made about my work or 100% aesthetic in the beginning. I didn't start with this conversation that I'm having, but in a way it's a journal of me processing my life and living in this world. And the work means different things to me at different times. This week, it resonates with me as something that's deeply needed. And I pray for the day that these images become so unimportant because maybe the issues at some point disappear. But right now we need to see images of ourselves and people need to see images of us that are simply represented outside of the dominant historical narrative. And so like, as soon as that goes away, which I kind of am assuming is never gonna happen, then the paintings will be boring all of a sudden because they'll just be images of people. But now they mean so much because the black body is politicized and it's making a statement. Amy's work makes me pose questions about where I stand on issues of race and vulnerability and why, and what can I do to make this world better? The question is how to make what Amy imagines become real, and how do we reshape a world in a way that makes it feel less toxic and more hopeful? And I'm wondering what you hope that viewers take away from seeing your work. A sense of wholeness. I mean, I appreciate the emails that I get from people who are not Black, who really look at the work and see themselves. I want them to leave with a sense of wholeness, but for me, because I live in a city that's full of such disparity, I'm painting these images in hopes that we can see ourselves in a different way. To be able to think freely and to imagine is a privilege in itself. Atlanta-based artist and scholar Fahamu Peku, a.k.a. rap artist Fahamu Peku is the shit, addresses concerns around the contemporary representation reading, and performance of Black masculinity. In 2014, while finishing his doctoral studies, he curated an issue of Art Papers magazine, opening up a dialogue between hip-hop and art. It's about intersections and where art and hip-hop connect to each other. There seems to be an agenda to make these very clear distinctions and, and separations, but hip-hop and art are the same thing. It's not different at all. If you go back to the genesis of hip-hop culture, everything was all there. It was a culture because it had all these moving pieces. It was visual art, it was music, it was dance, it was theater and drama, it was performance, it was scholarship. It was all of these things were all a part of the genesis of hip-hop. And it was only as it became more popular or, or more socially accepted as, as a norm and hip-hop culture wasn't going anywhere that it began to get fragmented and broken up. So, you know, the corporate investors saw that the music was more lucrative. And so they threw all the money at rap music. So I was interested in bringing back to the conversation the way that all of these different aspects of the culture actually intersect with each other. And in doing so, hopefully open up the conversation so that we're not just considering art as something that exists in museums and galleries and thinking about hip hop as something that happens in the hood. 
but that, you know, art happens in the hood and hip hop happens in the galleries. Exploit the youth, we tell them to join the gang. We tell them dope stories, introduce them to the gang. Just like I love a North introduced us to cocaine. In the 80s when them bricks came on military plane. That was Killer Mike's performance of Reagan. An interview with Mike is just one of the perspectives voiced in the art papers issue that Fahamu just curated. What I tried to do was really think about the issue in terms of what I would want to read, which was actually, I think, a a really good uh, practice for me because it opened up the conversation about hip-hop and art to be much broader than I initially conceived on my own. And so the submissions go from everywhere, from interviews with uh, hip-hop artists. We have an interview with uh, hip-hop artist Killer Mike, who's like a super, super, super dope, very insightful, very outspoken individual anyway. So anytime I get to have a conversation with him is awesome. We have an essay that provides a a different sort of perspective on the... uh, the performance that happened uh, this past summer with Jay-Z at a Pace Gallery in New York. And a lot of people challenged that performance on its merits as a performance art piece. But this piece by Mark Anthony Neal, who's a professor at Duke University, actually uses the opportunity to talk about the way hip-hop transforms the spaces that it comes to occupy and the importance of that. Um, And I think that's a really unique perspective and one that really opens up the dialogue about hip hop and art in a different kind of way. We have people who are contributing, talking about the way fashion factors into hip hop and art, the way African cultural retentions factor into art and hip hop. We have pieces that talk about the performative aspects of hip hop and particularly the way the queer hip hop movement queers both hip-hop culture as well as performance space and as well as queer theory, which is a really, really complicated (laughs) piece, but I thought also a very poignant piece. I feel pretty good in saying that we were able to offer a really broad and challenging perspective on hip-hop and art and its intersections in a way that is respectful of, of both mediums and respectful of the artists who are participating and also challenging to the reader. So it makes everybody have a a different sort of perspective, you know, and that's what I was hoping to accomplish. Based on the response to your call, I guess there is a broad group of people doing critical research and writing on this topic. Yeah, I mean, it was, the response was overwhelming. I mean, it was almost immediate. Like, as soon as we sent out the call within, you know, a couple of hours, you know, we had dozens of, of submissions it was like people were kind of sitting on these stories, waiting on a, a place to, to present them. You know, it was, it was pretty awesome. I'm curious, what, what's your bigger goal for this whole project? Where are you going? I, I think because my work has always straddled these two worlds, hip-hop and art, that I'm really interested in establishing myself as that, that guy, the art hip-hop guy. I, I would like to play an integral role in, in driving the conversation that happens there. I kind of felt like rather than wait for somebody else to do it, I'll, I'll step in and, and make it happen. We get caught up in the swag and the trappings. We buy the products without examining. Find truth in the lies niggas rapping. We get enticed by the bright and the shiny things. <laughs> Gotta see the cost is our souls. And all that glitters ain't goals. A native of Austin, Texas, where she now lives and works, Artist Deborah Roberts' views on race and identity show up in the fierce young black girls that figure in her collages. 
the Spelman Museum of Art, situated in one of Atlanta, Georgia's private women's colleges, was the perfect venue for Robert's 2018 solo exhibition. Influencing your work is not only art history and popular culture, but black culture and just American history in general. What do you feel is the strongest of those threads that we would see in your work today? I think a lot of American history and black culture are two of the things that you see in my work primarily. I mean, that's always going to be present. The pop culture references and art history references are just a sideline to the work that I do. American history is unique in the sense that we come from a slavery background. So blackness and slavery, you know, go hand in hand in America and trying to get through that and to navigate those deep, deep wounds is sometimes very hard. And it's going to be very present in my work because we still are having some of these same problems today. And I know that girlhood, womanhood, being a woman and that ideal of beauty connected to the Venus figure that you've referenced often is something that you push back against in your collages. How will you come to these strong women able to take hold of the household, go out, make the money, be great friends and, and wives and mothers. And I noticed that a lot of African-American women who are artists talk about adult women, beauty, body, hair, lips. When does the glove of power come on as a woman? And I thought eight years old is when you're coming into your own idea of who you are. You get to start picking your own clothes. You get to do your hairstyle things that tells more about who you are right now and maybe last a lifetime. And so I thought between 8 and 10 years old, those were the formative years, and I thought that was very important in doing. The show at Spelman was the best thing in the world because not only did it allow young college-age women to see my work, but they saw themselves in the work. I saw so many girls come up crying to me. It was overwhelming. It was cathartic for me, and it told me that I'm doing the right thing. At this point in my life, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be showing the black experience of black girlhood. That show is called The Evolution of Mimi, and there's been another set of work called The Miseducation of Mimi and mm -hmm. other series revolving around this character. Mimi is actually Mariah Carey, and the miseducation is Lauren Hill. So when I started doing this work, I love Lauren Hill, the way she talked about a mother having to make choices between her career and having children, and just the power of her voice. Then you have Mariah Carey, who was pushed on the national stage. She's biracial. She had to not only prove that she was black, but she was black enough, and that she lived in two worlds. And I think that happens a lot with blackness, because when you're black, you're black. Merging Mariah Carey and Lauren Hill together was perfect for the girls I wanted to create. And how do you think you have empowered women through the way you have presented these figures? I use big fist. I got power arms. I have Michelle Obama's fist and hands. Marion Wright Edelman, I have her hands. Muhammad Ali's fist. I just think that when you look at my work, there is a sense of ownership of who I am, that my power is not anything less than anyone else, that I am not lesser. I am in control of who I am, and I accept who I am also, which is very important. My girls sometimes have their hands on the hips. They're sassy, but vulnerable. 
They're powerful, yet they can be reduced to tears. I think that these girls exude power and strength and a vulnerability that lies underneath that power that can be easily bruised and touched. British-Nigerian artist Yinka Shinabare selected Deborah Roberts' collages for Talisman in the Age of Difference, a 2018 group exhibition he curated at the Friedman Gallery in London. Roberts' collages shared the space with contemporary art from Africa and the global African diaspora. I think Yinka, when he was thinking about how he wanted to push the notion that black art matters, this was a really good idea, and I think he brought together a large group of artists who work is totally different but speak the same language. Sometimes black Americans always think that everything that happened to us is because we're black, but now black includes Haitians, Jamaicans, Cubans, Trinidadians, everyone. So black isn't just black color for black Americans. So that's why I said it is not a color anymore. It is a movement. How do you think that this exhibition exudes blackness in a way that it's never been seen before? There's multiple voices talking about different ideas of blackness, different experiences, talking about black excellence, black power, black girls rock. Everything is all together in this one exhibit that works from several different generations, all talking about the notion of self and how self is perceived, how the world sees us. I think he did an amazing job. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. In this episode, we hear from artists whose work directly engages with race and American identity. Through their individual perspectives, these artists generate freestyle expressions of blackness. They reveal that no matter how history influences the black cultural space, identity remains a fluid form in the hands of contemporary artists. Let's end with the passage from Ralph Ellison's novel, Invisible Man, read by Hamza Walker. Brothers and sisters, my text this morning is the blackness of blackness. And the congregation of voices answered, that blackness is most black, brother, most black. In the beginning, at the very start, they cried, there was blackness. Preaching and the sun, the sun, Lord, was bloody red, red. Now black is, the preacher shouted. I said, black is, preach it, brother, and black ain't. Red, Lord, red, he said it's red. Amen, brother. Black will get you, yes it will, yes it will. And black won't, no it won't, it do, do, Lord, and it don't. Hallelujah. It'll put you glory, glory, oh my Lord, in the whale's belly. Preach it, dear brother, and make you tempt, good God Almighty, old Aunt Nellie. Black will make you black, or black will unmake you. Thank you to the Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation for supporting this Black in America segment, featured in issue 11 of the online periodical Exhibitions on the Cusp. Visit freshartinternational.com to explore more than 200 episodes in our archive. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review Fresh Art International anywhere you go for podcasts. 
it means a lot to know you're listening. With the support of followers like you, we've been sharing these conversations since 2011. To help us keep sharing our stories, go to freshartinternational.com and click on the red support button. The Knight Foundation will match every dollar you give. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.